morning, church. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, the words that we have sung convey precious truths that we we need you desperately. And not only do we need you, but it is a magnificent, blessed thing that we have you. And you are worthy of all our worship. And now as we open the scriptures together and consider important things, uh, we we feel again the sense of our need for you, and we, we pray with great confidence that you would meet us here, that your Holy Spirit would help us to, to understand the scriptures, to mold our hearts and our lives to conform to your ways, to your character. We pray that you would do that, and that as you are doing your work in us, we would rejoice in that. We pray for your help in these few minutes, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please uh, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Someone caught me on the way in this morning and had already looked at the outline. And he said, it looks like you're preaching a topical sermon this morning. Something to the effect of, uh, are we going off the deep end? Well, that is one of the the blessings of having a plurality of elders, is that there are a number of us to keep any of the others from going off the deep end. Now, I would say that this is a doctrinal sermon rather than a topical sermon. At any rate, we are taking a break from Mark, and to my, to my recollection, we have never taken a break from a normal sermon series due to a current event. If we have done it, it is so infrequent that I don't, I don't remember doing it, but I asked the elders for permission, and they, they agreed. As I'm sure everyone is aware, a week ago, the Supreme Court overturned the Roe versus Wade decision returning the issue of abortion to the authority of the states. And the, the reason that I wanted to bring a message about this is that I, I have been shocked and saddened by the number of professing believers who have been angered by the Supreme Court decision. It, it seems that in some pockets of the professing church, there has been an erosion of conscience, and perhaps not here at Providence, but broadly, that has been the case, and perhaps there has been a softening of the biblical stance for life. And so, very simply, I'd like to show you why, as believers, we should stand for the unborn, why we should celebrate any measure that protects them. What, what I don't want to do this morning is provide ammo for anyone's social media howitzer times like this, it's definitely helpful to remember what Jesus did and did not say in John 13, 35. He did not say, 
By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you hold the right position on a range of significant theological and social issues. But rather, what did he say? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So really, I'm, I'm not intending so much to equip you to engage with other people. If you do find these things helpful and want to share them, that's wonderful. But my fervent prayer is that you would do so with a, a heaping dose of winsomeness and love. But really, the primary purpose this morning is that is that if there are any consciences among us who have begun to be eroded due to a, perhaps an overexposure to the sustained rhetoric of our culture on this issue or an underexposure to the pertinent biblical truths that give clear moral direction to this issue, that, that those consciences would be sensitized and turned. And that perhaps those of us who do hold a biblical position, that we would be fortified in that position and, and that we might be prevented from going where others have gone, and that is softening in our stance for life. So I'm not going to talk about biology this morning not going to talk about politics, not going to talk about the Constitution, just going to talk about the, the Bible. We're going to build a biblical case for life this morning. But before I do, a, a brief word to those who have abortion in your past. There will be more to say toward the end, but if you have abortion in your past in some way, Be sure that you take the gospel with you as we, as we build this case this morning because these things may be very heavy for you. And it's important to remember that really the only reason that we're all here this morning unified in one body is that Christ's blood was sufficient to cover our sins. So let's hang on to that as we hear some heavy things. And we'll close with some glorious truth about the gospel. So the first step in, in this case for life is that God is the Lord of all creation. God is the Lord of all creation. And we've, we've, we've opened already to Genesis 1. And I've neglected to read a, a text. It's our custom to stand and read a text. I've neglected to do that. Please forgive me. Just out of habit, we need to do this. So... So let's stand and read two verses, okay? I will, I will itch all night long if we don't stand and read at least two verses. So thank you for this. Thank you for this. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You may be seated. Now, if you've never been to Providence before and, and never heard us talk about this, the reason that we do that is just to remind ourselves that as we open our Bibles every Sunday, we're not opening the Reader's Digest or Sports Illustrated, but we're opening the very Word of God and it, and it deserves to be revered. And this is, that's just our way of doing that. 
reminding ourselves that this is God's Word. So once again, the first, the first step in our, our case for life is that God is the Lord of all creation. And so now we want to look up to the very first verse of the Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we could read the rest of Genesis 1.1. Most of us are very familiar with it. We don't have time to do that. But what we would find if we were to read the rest of these verses, of course, is, is, is Moses, who wrote the, the, the Pentateuch, these first five books, we would find him detailing God creating all things. We would find God repeatedly saying words and calling into existence things that don't exist. And we could multiply references to the effect that God not only created the world, but that He also sustains it. Just two of those references would be Hebrews 1.3 and Colossians 1.17. Because God created the world and God sustains the world, the Bible teaches that God owns everything. He made everything, so He owns everything. You might write down Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, which reads this way, the earth, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So, God is, He is the Lord of all. He reigns over His creation. That means that He makes the rules. He decides everything. What He says goes. This is the nature of ownership, of lordship. That would be true no matter the character of God. However, the Bible also teaches that God is worthy of worship. We've been singing about this for, for several minutes now. He is worthy of worship and veneration because of His own innate character. He is resplendent in glory. He is the source of all power. He is the giver of every good gift. He's the Father of lights. And He is perfectly morally upright or holy. So what we find in the Scriptures is that we have a caring, loving, all-powerful, creating and sustaining Lord of all creation. He owns everything, and so He has the right to require His creation to live in a manner that, that is consistent with His own character. And He does that. He gives, us, he gives us guidelines in His Word for how we as His creatures should live in accordance with or consistent with His own character. Now, all of that flows from the creation account. God created everything, so He owns everything, so He's Lord of everything, and so He makes the rules. Now, we find our next step in those verses that we stood to read a few moments ago, and that next step is that humans are made in God's image. We are made in God's image. And I'll read those two verses again because they're, they're very important. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, it's, it's been debated for millennia what exactly it means to be created in God's image. And I don't have time to make an exhaustive case for it this morning because we don't have time. But, but I will say one of the best explanations that I have ever heard is, is that of Peter Gentry. Peter Gentry in a book called Kingdom Through Covenant, if you're interested in, in taking a deep dive into that issue. Kingdom Through Covenant. 
Essentially, God created us in His image in such a way that we serve as His representatives on earth. We do what He does as, as little pictures of Him. God created all things. We see that in this first part of Genesis 1. God created all things, then He created man, and then in a sense He commands man to create. He says, man, be fruitful and multiply. Do what I do. And in that sense, we are a visible representation of God's character and work, caring for the creation. We do what God does. We are created in His image. And our being created in God's image, it is our design, our capacity, and our inclination to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over God's creation in a manner consistent with His character. Now, if we were to go forward a couple of chapters in Genesis, we would find the first man and the first woman rejecting God as Lord, and we would find their capacity and inclination to function as God's representatives in the world, we would find that capacity and inclination being marred. And some have said that the image of God in man through the fall, has been marred, but not lost. And we may agree, we may disagree, we may quibble a little bit with that wording. But the key thing to note is, and we'll see shortly, that even in our fallen state, we are still created in God's image. So, so even at our worst, even, even, even committing egregious sins, we are, we are created in God's image. The man's creation in God's image is foundational to the biblical worldview. There are any number of realities in this world that just do not make sense if you remove the truth of man's creation in God's image, which leads to a third step in our case for life, which is creation in God's image imparts value to humans distinct from all other creatures. Creation in God's image imparts value to humans distinct from all other creatures. And we see this both implicitly and explicitly in the Scriptures. We're going to stay in Genesis for a bit longer, but we're going to turn all the way over to Genesis 9 now. Genesis 9. And this is the passage that was read for us at the beginning of the service this morning. It comes just after the receding of the waters of the great flood. And you'll recall that one of the things that precipitated that great flood was the violence of men. And that violence of, of men on the earth came as a result of humanity's plunge into sin. So the first man and the first woman, they rejected God's design. They fell into sin. And so all humanity fell into sin. And man became a, a murderous mob, essentially. And so God is now going to institute a new standard of justice to, to hold back the, the evil of men. So, so we're, now we're looking at Genesis 9, beginning in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. 
but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Now, uh, there are wonderful biblical theological things going on here that, that, again, we don't have time to look at. Suffice to say that, that God desires to bring a redemption of the mankind, of the fall of mankind that happened earlier in Genesis. Everything in the storyline of Genesis fits with this trajectory toward redemption, and so also does this story. Now, just notice here that the Lord says to Noah, essentially, hey, you can eat everything now. Every beast, bird, bug, fish, on top of all the plants that you used to be able to eat. So initially, man was just a vegetarian, must have been pretty hard, but now they can eat everything. You can eat absolutely, absolutely everything. But, verse 5, but for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. In other words, you, human, you can kill plant and animal, but if anything kills you, including another human. If another human kills you, they have to die. And this is one of those realities that makes no sense outside of a biblical worldview. Humans can kill and eat everything else, but nothing can kill humans without paying with their life. Why is that? Well, he tells us in verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for... God made man in His own image. Now that is crucial for a couple of reasons. First of all, this is obviously taking place on the dark side of the fall. All mankind at this point in time is tainted by sin. Everyone is naturally bent to rebel against God, and yet they're still described as created in God's image. So man's fallen incapacity and disinclination to serve as God's representatives and to image God in the world do not negate God's design. Man is still made in God's image. And second, creation in God's image conveys a level of intrinsic value to humans that the rest of the creation does not enjoy. Man's life is of greater value to God than the rest of creation because man bears God's image. To kill a man is to desecrate the image of God. And in the sense that is intended here, we call it murder. One cannot do it without also paying life for life. If an animal kills a human, the animal must die. If another human murders a human, that person must die. And this is the first expression in the Bible of capital punishment. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood must be shed. Other humans are to value the image of God such that they bring justice on God's behalf by taking the life of someone who murders another human being. And this shows what Genesis has already taught which is that God expects man to serve as his representative, and here he expects man to serve as his representative in meeting out justice for murder. Now, this, this command regarding capital punishment tells us that God, again, makes a distinction between innocent human life and guilty human life, because here he's commanded that the murderer's life be taken by other humans. Innocent life is to be protected. Guilty human life is to be brought to justice. 
The Scriptures hold up the value of innocent human life in, in, in another way by, by how the Scriptures speak of ritual sacrifices. Ritual sacrifices. If you read Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, then read about David's kingdom, read about Solomon's kingdom and thereafter. Over the centuries in the, the kingdom of, of Israel, jillions of animals, jillions were sacrificed without a word about any inherent evil of that slaughter. There are occasional statements that it didn't please God, but not because it's wrong to kill animals. It didn't please God because the hearts of the people were far from God. But those sacrifices were commanded by God. Conversely, how did God feel about sacrificing humans in any kind of worship? There were these pagan nations around Israel that did that. How did God feel about that? It was a great abomination to Him. And we find later in Israel's history, they whored after these false gods of the nations, one in particular named Molech. And the people of Israel began to burn their own children in sacrifice to this false god. And God hated it. It was an abomination to Him. Why? Leviticus 12, I'm sorry, Leviticus 20 verses 2 and 3 tell us. Because those murders profaned His name, profaned God's name. Those children were made in God's image. Now, all of this lays a foundation for our next step, which is crucial for the issue at hand, and that is that personhood and therefore the image of God in man exists from conception. Personhood and therefore the image of God in man exists from conception. There are numerous biblical texts where we find the Scriptures recognizing the personhood of the child in the womb. That is, the, the, the Bible views unborn children as humans and therefore created in the image of God and therefore worthy of preservation and protection. So first, there, there are passages indicating that, that unborn children have souls, which means they're persons. So, so here's one, Psalm 51. Some of you will recognize that reference immediately. Psalm 51, you can turn there with me if you'd like. David wrote Psalm 51 after being convicted of his sins of adultery and murder. And there are a few verses here that are, that are pertinent. David is lamenting his own sinfulness for those sins. He's grieved, he's repenting over his sin. We'll pick up in verse 3. You can hear his grief over the awareness of his sin. It's his own sin. So Psalm 51.3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, here in verse 5 is what's especially pertinent to our discussion this morning. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, who, whose sin is he talking about here in verse 5? In, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Is, is he talking about his sin, or is he talking about his mother's sin? Some have suggested it's his mother's sin, but that does not fit with 
the context, the whole point of the psalm. In every, every other verse, he is lamenting his own sin. Now, verse 5 does not indicate that he sinned in the womb, but that he is a member of Adam's race. He is a human soul. He is a moral agent descended from Adam and ruined by the imputation of sin. He is a person in the womb. A very, very similar reference is Psalm 58.3. Psalm 58.3, which says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They are estranged from the womb. See, again, the Bible sees the unborn as human beings, moral agents. Even though they have not yet made any moral choices, they are in their father Adam. And therefore, they are estranged from, from conception. All of that assumes personhood. And were it not for these verses, we might be left to ask the question, well, at what point does someone become a member of Adam's race? At what point does someone become fallen? Well, the Bible has already answered that question for us. It is in the womb. A person doesn't become a sinner when he or she sins. A person doesn't become fallen when he or she breaks God's law personally. We are sinners in Adam, fallen members of the human race from our very conception. These verses in the Psalms assume that. They, they don't make any sense otherwise. Now let's turn over to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. In Exodus chapter 21, the unborn are assumed not only to be persons, but they are afforded an even greater protection. Their lives are afforded an even greater protection than the rest of society. In Exodus 21, 22 and following, we have a law, again, which only makes sense if the unborn baby is a human being made in the image of God. So look with me beginning at Exodus 21, verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. Now, we'll stop right there just briefly. First note that he calls, he calls them children. Not fetuses or anything else, but children. Their children come out, but but there is no harm. Now that word harm, that that Hebrew word means literally fatal accident. And so he's saying that, but there is no fatal accident. What what we what, what we we might call manslaughter. In other words, you've got these these two men fighting. They hit a pregnant woman so that there is this this premature birth, but the children are fine. They're, they're, they're going to be okay. Continuing on, the one who hit her shall, be, shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, in other words, that, 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 that's that same word again, if there is a fatal accident, if the babies in the womb die, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, some, some translations, the RSV is one of them, 
than are others. Some translations really muddy the waters here because they, they add words. They're trying to be helpful, but, but, but they muddy the waters. The ESV is great and clear. If either the mother or the child or children die as a result of this violence, which was not intentionally directed at them, the penalty is death as if it was a murder, an intentional murder. Why is that? Because the child is a child, whether it's in the womb or out of the womb. That, that is a person made in God's image. And actually, if we, if we put this law in the context of the rest of the law of Moses, it appears that this is especially designed to protect the unborn. Because remember, this is a case of an accidental killing. And this is the only situation in the law of Moses where an accidental killing calls for the death penalty. All other accidental killings have this provision where, where the, the manslayer, is what the Scriptures call them, the manslayer can go to what's called a city of refuge. And if you want to re- read about that situation, you can go to Numbers 35 or Joshua 21. Numbers 35, Joshua 21. I won't go into those details right now. But this, this is a special situation that only pertains to the unborn child. The accidental killing of an unborn child calls for death. Why would that be the case? Because you have not only the image of God at play, but you also have this pervasive thing that we see throughout Scripture, which is God's desire that the helpless be protected. There are other passages we could turn to showing God consecrating individuals for special service while they're still in the womb, indicating that they are they're persons, they're human beings. I'll give you just a few of these, just a few. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1.5 reads, this is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, that is, while you're in the womb, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. John the Baptist is another example. In in the first chapter of Luke, we find the angel of the Lord speaking to Zechariah, John's father, and saying this, he, John, will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So while he's still in the womb, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that same baby, John, we find later in, in the first chapter of Luke, we find him leaping for joy at the sound of a pregnant Mary's voice. All of this indicating That's a person in that womb. Another example is Samson. Samson in the book of Judges. And here too we have the words of an angel about about the coming birth of Samson. It says, for the child, and again we're talking about an unborn child, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And this this is a child in the womb. He's going to be a Nazarite. A Nazarite was somebody who was consecrated unto God. So Samson, in the womb, he is consecrated unto God. Again, it implies this is a soul. He's a person made in God's image. Now, all of these passages that we've referenced, they might be as explicit as some would like. Some may may say or, or feel, man, I just really want a passage somewhere that says, don't abort a baby. Now, I think that Exodus 21 22 is pretty clear. But if, if you're wondering, man, this, this doesn't seem quite as tight as, as, as I would like. There are 
indications all over ancient literature that, that the Jews and ancient Christians understood the Scriptures this way. Now, let's just run through the logic again so that we, that we understand the case that, that, that we've been making. Man is created in God's image. It's wrong to kill those made in God's image. As we've seen, the Scriptures assume that unborn babies are children, therefore, they're made in God's image, so I can't kill an unborn baby. Now, there may not be a, a verse in Scripture that says very directly, don't kill an unborn baby. To my knowledge, there's, there, there isn't a verse that says, ver that says that directly, don't kill your mother-in-law. But we don't do it because we follow this same kind of logic, right? Man is created in God's image. Genesis 1.26 says that includes females. My mother-in-law is a female. It's wrong to kill those made in God's image, so I, I can't kill my mother-in-law. So we, we already make that kind of, the, the, those kind of logical deductions with, with every other segment of society, and the Scriptures have indicated to us that unborn, unborn humans are humans, so let's just do the same kind of math that we do with everything else and say, no, this is wrong. But... As I mentioned, there is literature all over the ancient world that indicates that, that, that what, what I've just done is not just Western thinking. It's not just Western logic past patching these things together, but the ancients did this kind of thinking. So let, let me give you just a few examples. I could give you, I could give you a number, but I'm going to give you a few uh, ancient Jewish examples, one ancient Christian example. One piece of ancient Jewish wisdom literature called Pseudo-Phosylides from around the time that Jesus was born says this, do not let a woman destroy the unborn babe in her belly. Now, Why would that piece of literature say that? Because that piece of literature is wisdom literature based upon the Scriptures, based upon the Hebrew Scriptures. Similarly, Josephus, and I've mentioned him before, he's a first century Jewish historian, he wrote this, the law orders all the offspring be brought up. In, order, in other words, every conceived child should be raised. He goes on to say, and forbids women either to cause abortion or to make away with the fetus. And now this is from an ancient church manual called the Didache, which was uh, like a, a, a manual of church order. And some of it, it, it explicates Theology, especially the first section, is about, is about Christian theology. It says this, You shall not murder a child by abortion, nor after a child has been born shall you kill them. Now, I'm not quoting those ancient sources because they are themselves authoritative. I'm just saying this is how the ancients understood the Scriptures. They, they did the same kind of logic that we're doing this morning. So we're not, we're not imposing Western logic onto, onto the Scriptures. And they have thought these things because they understood the, the abolition or the, 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 the forbidding of abortion to be an obvious implication of the teaching of Scripture. So where we should land on this is that this is not a conscience issue. The Bible teaches that this is wrong. Aborting a child is wrong. And it isn't an issue of personal conviction. So, so it is not okay for Christians to say something like, I personally wouldn't abort a child, but I can't force my view on somebody, on somebody else. 
we, we wouldn't do that. Again, we wouldn't do that with, with the mother-in-law thing. We wouldn't do that with, with killing a spouse. So we ought not do that with an unborn baby because just like the mother-in-law, the spouse, the, the teenage son, the unborn baby, according to the Scriptures, is, is a human being. And so it is wrong, and we ought to stand up for the fact that it is, is wrong. Now, in, in a group this size, there's, there's almost certainly someone who has aborted a child or, or paid for the abortion of a child or perhaps championed the cause of abortion, maybe marching in, in pickets, those, those kinds of things. And uh, again, a presentation like this may have served to heap up guilt on you. So let's, let's close with this. And, and that is that Christ came to redeem a fallen humanity. Christ came to redeem a fallen humanity. So we, we've already noted our creation in the image of God and our rebellion against God and, and how that fallenness is passed on through conception. And we've, we've noted the whole storyline of the Scriptures. It moves toward redemption. There, there is this undercurrent throughout the Scriptures of longing for humankind to be reconciled to God. And the Scriptures tell us that the one chosen to secure that redemption was the eternal Son. And Colossians 1.15 says of Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God. Now, although Jesus Christ was not created in the image of the Father, He eternally exists in the image of the Father. Unlike us, the Son, the Son was not merely a representative of God, not just an image of God, but Colossians 1.19 tells us that in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Son has been and always will be very God of very God. And this Christ, according to Colossians 1.20, has reconciled fallen humans to the Father by the blood of His cross. That is, having lived a sinless life on earth, the Son was delivered up by the plan of God to bear the sins of His own people on the cross and there to satisfy the wrath of God for them. And so, all those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ, they are forgiven, they are reconciled, they are given eternal life in Christ, and they will spend eternity in paradise with the Godhead. So, so l listen again, all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ, that means that, that abortion, it, it cannot be an unforgivable sin. And so you, believer, who have a past that you, that you regret. Listen to Psalm 103, 10 through 12. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. He does not deal with believers according to their sin because He dealt with Christ according to their sin. 
and he, he did that with such finality that their transgressions have been removed from them as far as the east is from the west. Now, you who have not repented and followed Christ in faith, but this morning you have been convicted of your sin, of, of abortion or, or, or anything else, understand that the Scriptures do teach that sin is egregious. It is so egregious that it can only, it can only be paid by the blood of Christ. But please do not think so highly of your sin nor so little of Christ that you think that His blood cannot cover your sin. Repent today. Trust Him today to reconcile you with the Father so that you can walk in forgiveness, walk in freedom from guilt, and walk in the joy of discipleship. And, and let's all remember that the gospel is central to this, to this whole issue. We, we do need to speak clearly, we need to speak logically and winsomely about the value of life created in God's image. We need to be able to communicate the things that we've seen in the Scriptures today. But ultimately, the vast majority of lost souls will not care. They will not care. The greatest tool in the fight for the life of the unborn is the tool that we wield in our fight for the lost, and that is the gospel. We must continue to speak the gospel. We must continue to speak it in every sphere of influence. We must speak it lovingly and winsomely. And we need to continue to pray. The, the overturning of Roe is just the beginning, so we must continue to pray. We must continue to share the gospel as we stand for life. So I'm, I'm going to pray. And in a moment, we'll share a brief moment of, of silence together and reflection, and we'll consider each of us what the Lord would have us to do with these things. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of physical life. We thank you for the gift of being created in, in your image, unlike all the rest of creation. We pray, Father, that you would grant us to think highly of that gift, that we would honor it in others, that we would value and esteem every human being that we come into contact with because they bear your image, and that we would value the life of the unborn because they bear your image. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us for any and every way that we have devalued the life of the unborn. We pray, Father, that you would move us to continue to pray fervently for them and for the cause of life in this country and across the world, that one Supreme Court ruling would not move us to complacency or a spirit of triumphalism or victory that we would, we would continue to labor, we would continue to speak winsomely the gospel and the case for life. And Father, we thank you for the gift of spiritual life in Christ. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that covers every sin, including the sin of taking a human life. 
We thank you, Father, that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.